Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class. A society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the working class left. What unites us is one common goal, to build a different world, a better world. We really appreciate you making Renegade Paradise part of your podcast rotation. If you like what you hear on this episode, please take a moment to leave a comment or rating on the platform of your choice. You can also find Charleston DSA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at our website at charlestondsa.org. Thanks for listening. I'm CJ Bones, and I'm coming to you from one of the hot spots of the COVID-19 pandemic. And depending on the actions of the folks running our school districts, it could get even hotter. We're going to be talking about that tonight. So let's go ahead and get the obvious out of the way first. Charleston DSA stands behind our teachers and supports public education. A free, high-quality education is one of the few rights Americans have left. To quote the South Carolina State Constitution, the General Assembly shall provide for the maintenance and support of a system of free public schools open to all children in the state and shall establish, organize, and support such other public institutions of learning as may be desirable. A free, high-quality education is essential to ensure that young folks can grow up to become the best versions of themselves they can be. Well-informed, engaged young people start movements that change the world for the better. They're the vanguard of building that better world we talk so much about. We see it over and over again in historic socialist movements throughout America. To deny young people an education is to deny them the ability to become their best selves. And yet, that's just what South Carolina is attempting to do in the wake of the pandemic. Governor Henry McMaster and the South Carolina State Legislature long ago decided that getting back to normal was more important than taking a global pandemic that has killed over 741,000 people worldwide seriously. And about a quarter of all worldwide COVID-19 cases have been documented right here in the U.S., So, instead of doing things like extending the moratorium on foreclosures and evictions, uh, South Carolina instead established Accelerate SC. Part of this task force is Accelerate Ed. And Accelerate Ed is uh, is charged with getting schools back up and running as quickly as possible, so that parents can get back to work as quickly as possible, so that bosses can cobble together a decent third quarter profit. You see where this is going? Anyway, Accelerate Ed probably not wanting to make too many powerful enemies in Trump country, made some pretty tame, non-controversial recommendations. Here's a quote from their final report that was presented to the state back in July. In order to best guide district decision-making, the State Department should collaborate with DHEC to develop clear criteria for determining the rate of spread of COVID-19 in an area. Districts need clear guidance from our public health authorities to determine which of three conditions, low, medium, or high spread, an area is in. DHEC, of course, has gone on the record plenty of times stating how important social distancing, sanitization, and wearing masks are to limiting the spread. So basically, Accelerate Ed's final recommendation boiled down to listen to DHEC, listen to doctors, listen to scientists, they know what they're talking about. 
And that seems reasonable, right? Instead, Henry McMaster ignored the recommendations of Accelerate Ed, demanding that schools offer in-person education five days a week. When pressed on this by local media, McMaster's response was pretty ghoulish and sounded a lot like his uh, favorite president. The higher percentages that we see now, those are just facts we have to deal with. But we can't stop everything. We can't stop progress in education and people working. We can't shut down forever, as if the two were, you know, mutually exclusive, legitimate choices. But that's, you know, a statement for later. Molly Spearman, superintendent of South Carolina schools, is part of that Accelerate Ed task force. Spearman went on record as stating, quote, We cannot turn a blind eye to the health and public safety of our students and staff when the spread of the virus in some of our communities is among the highest in the world. School leaders, in consultation with public health experts, are best positioned to determine how in-person operations should be carried out to fit the needs of their local communities. Meanwhile, local teachers have received notable lack of press attention for their response to McMaster's irresponsible demands. They have rightfully questioned the logic behind this mad dash to reopen with little regard to student, teacher, and community safety. We're going to be talking to a couple of teachers from Berkeley and Dorchester counties on tonight's episode to find out what they think. We'll be discussing their unanswered questions, continuing concerns, and whether or not the government that claims to serve them is listening. A little later in the episode, we'll be broadening the discussion to talk about the anti-science individualist mindset at play here in South Carolina that will cause needless infection and death, and how this sort of mindset comes from the top down. We'll also be touching on how the lack of broadband access in rural communities plays a role in this crisis, the weaponization of teaching as a, quote, noble and selfless profession, unquote, and some things our listeners can do to support local teachers as they grapple with this unprecedented situation. So as socialists, we have a lot of different tasks here. We must continue to look at this issue in a materialist way and understand how the drive to reopen schools relates to the drive to reopen the economy and how both efforts exist in the first place to ensure the continued financial dominance of the ruling class. We must also use this crisis as an opportunity to further study the contradictions of capitalism and realize that without the power of the labor of our brains and bodies, our enemies in the ruling class have nothing. But most importantly, we must defend our teachers, our students, our families, and our communities from the heartless demands of the anti-science conmen running our government. Joe Biden and recently nominated VP candidate Kamala Harris aren't coming to save us. We must save ourselves. And so the struggle continues. Shout out to our teachers. We've got your back. I'm CJ Bones, and this is Renegade Paradise. So, uh, Dre, Lauren, uh, just want to thank you all very much for joining me tonight. Uh, you want to introduce yourselves for the listeners and, and chat a little bit about uh, the experiences you bring to the table and, and kind of what your, uh, uh, Dre, maybe what your role is in, in DSA and Lauren, kind of what you, what type of activism that you're into these days? Sure. So, uh, I'm um, a teacher. Uh, I am in the DSA. I've been pretty involved with um, the labor end of things recently because of what's going on surrounding education right now. And uh, I am a founding member of a new group called SC Teachers United, 
that is focusing on uh, labor rights within education? Um, I am, I've been a teacher for 12 years. Um, I work at Berkeley County Schools and I'm currently serve as a high school librarian um, after teaching the, some social science courses for the past decade. Um, so I've been a librarian for two years. Uh, I am still considered a teacher and educator. Um, I do manage a very large, uh, probably the largest library in our school district. Um, but aside from doing that, I do a lot of teaching and um, help kids learn how to use um, information in a wise way, uh, which is important today, I think. Um, I am a longtime activist. I started the Socialist Student Union 20 years ago at Winthrop University. Wow. Um, I, back then, um, people didn't really call themselves socialists, so it was sort of, it was sort of novel, but I was up for it, like, being the different person, you know, I never shied away from that. Although I think today I probably just look like my son says, I'm a soccer mom. <laughs> <laughs> I think he just says that to bother me. Uh, and anyway, whatever. Um, you know how, well, you, yes, as a teacher and whatever, you know how kids are. Um, he's a <laughs> the, tween. The socialist soccer mom caucus. Yeah, he's a tween, so. <laughs> So he is particularly like, uh, you know, like aggravating. He's, you know, he's deadly. Pushing the limit. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I have done all sort of things. I've been involved in um, Food Not Bombs uh, for almost 20 years because I, I worked with the chapter in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, we didn't have one in Rock Hill. That's where Winthrop's located. Um, but I, would, I joined them. Um, and then when I came home, as I graduated, we started a chapter here, um, and that was about 2002. And we worked, we worked on that for about seven years. Um, there's never been a huge activist community in Charleston, and it's a lot of transients, um, and it's a lot of college students who often, you know, find themselves to just be involved in a lot of things and. Um, I've oft, I've usually kind of felt a lot of um, this kind of disillusionment, um, but over the past few years, I've gotten re reinvigorated because I just feel like things have gotten too bad that I can't just sit back and be a soccer mom anymore. <laughs> be a soccer mom who listens to um, Fugazi or whatever. <laughs> Just <laughs> be cool like that. I have to be more public. Um, so we, I help, um, I helped Nick Rubin start another chapter of Food Not Bombs several years ago, which is where I met CJ, CJ Bones. Um, and because I'm, I've been in public ed for a long time, and I'm also, like I said, I'm a parent. Um, I have, I feel like I have a lot of, um, I have a lot at stake um, within my community and revolving around school and school issues. So uh, I'm certainly involved in a lot of things community-wise, um, uh, but we're trying to start this SC Teachers United. So we'll see where that goes um, right now. We're, we kind of use this, um, this uh, problem with going back to schools when it's not safe as our jumping off topic or focus point for SC Teachers United. 
um, to just as, as a place to begin to build a, some membership and some interest. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, SC Teachers United. Um, well, I and CJ, this may not mean much to you because you're not in education, but there's a, so in South Carolina, you, you know that, um, you know, there's not like a proper teacher's union, just like a lot of right. of, work, of businesses and professions don't, don't have that sort of power to, yeah. we can kind of only unionize in name only really. Um, but anyway, well, it's, it's especially weak within state employed people like teachers right. and other professions that are state employees like we don't not only can we do we not have bargaining rights like some other trades we you know it's actually illegal for us to unionize i think to begin with so um so we do have a really large teacher advocacy group called sc for ed which actually people um who are sort of opposed to it like to call it a union, which, you know, is just propaganda. It's certainly not a union, but it, it is a place where thousands and thousands of teachers mostly come together online, but um, they do have caucuses and things around the state throughout the year um, where we just are able to get together as a group and at least discuss issues and also try to pick issues um, of which we can sort of rally around to try to fix or whatever. So, um, I've been a member of SC for Ed since it started, and I've I've been active in some group uh, or some of the they do have local chapters. Um, I was a little bit sort of I wouldn't say offended, but um, a lot of times when you go to the meetings, you're kind of struck by the moderate nature of a lot of the people that are there, which you know is kind of we live in South Carolina. I've I was born and raised here, and I've been here for 40 years, so I'm really used to the attitudes that prevail, usually people who are sort of left or left leaning, they tend to at least moderate when they're around groups because it's just easier yeah. to do that. Um, you know, peer pressure isn't something that just exists for teenagers. It can be difficult as an adult too. But anyway, I felt like SC Fred is really too big to uh, focus on more progressive agenda items related to education. Um, such as a good example is the um, uh, cops in schools. Uh, and the reason that's a good example is because I went on SC for Ed. Um, you know, thankfully, Black Lives Matter has um, really uh, re rejuvenated the discussion around a lot of the social justice aspects of society. And one of them is pol should police be in schools? And I so I would say SC for Ed would want to argue about if should police should be in police should be in schools while um, SC Teachers United will say police should absolutely not be in schools. Then what can we do about it? Yeah, so yeah. we yeah. want to take a more like a uh, more hardline approach to try try not. And, you know, we 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 want we in our mission statement, which finally got written, we wanted to emphasize direct community control, which means that we want teachers making decisions. So it's not a it's not really about what Charleston teachers want as far as as a certain issue. Um, and let's make an agenda for everybody. It's really about trying to give teachers across the state the tools they need to organize around issues 
and, you know, make decisions for themselves. And we, we would certainly hope that all schools around the state would say um, no to cops in schools, but um, we hope to sort of facilitate um, a push for those conversations and providing resources and maybe yeah. just encourage and, um, you know, co cohesive community to rally mm -hmm. against those sort of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, I think there was a Teachers for Black Lives um, protest at some point in the past little bit here. I missed it. I didn't even know it was happening. But somebody in a meeting that we had the other day was talking about how SROs weren't even mentioned at this protest. And it was a, you know, Teachers for Black Lives event. And so that, I, I feel like SROs is definitely a school to prison pipeline issue that gets ignored quite a bit. Absolutely. Um, we were um, in our lat in a recent episode, uh, we had an interview with a few members of the Carolina Youth Action Project. Um, and one of their platforms was specifically uh, to push back against SROs in schools. Um, I should mention for our viewers that while, or our viewers, <laughs> our <laughs> listeners rather, um, that uh, uh, South Carolina does ban collective bargaining for public employees. So that really just takes all the teeth out of any sort of unionization action. Um, but it doesn't specifically ban them from striking. Um, so I think we saw that you know, last year with the uh, SC for Ed uh, protests in Columbia, you know, where like, what was it, 10,000 teachers showed up and, and it went down like multiple city blocks in Columbia. So the law is kind of weird here. Like you could still strike and you can still protest. Um, but, you know, it one of the main mechanisms you have for unionizing is banned. So it really kind of falls on the teachers a lot. And, and y'all might maybe know more about this. Um, to really fend for themselves and 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 organize themselves, uh, and and what you what you find with that is um, that a lot of teachers are very very hesitant and scared, yeah. uh, and rightfully so, to take any sort of action in defense of themselves within their jobs because uh, it's um, very possible that you know, if any sort of strike action were to be planned, uh, you know, unless you have a certain number of people willing to walk out, um, you're, you'll just be asked to not come back. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's, um, it's definitely hard to get momentum going when those sorts of rules are in place. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so what has been your experience uh, as the discussion has been going on about reopening schools? Do you feel like uh, thus far your concerns have been uh, heard and addressed? And uh, if no, why not? Um, Ellie, you want to take that first? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, I want to say that it's pretty much not, it's pretty much for me been like, well beyond just the summer months because when we went out on quarantine school closure in March I mean this is something that's been looming over us that entire time like this thought of like what's the virus going to look like in the future and are we going to be able to get back to school I mean you know we had a lot of public support for how teachers very quickly rallied and 
we're able to still at least continue um, educating students, you know, in a different way. But we certainly didn't shut things down. We were we were working really hard to still make sure that our kids were getting an education. Um, And I think, you know, from the beginning, we still had the future in mind. Were we going to have to continue to do this? And, you know, what I was always thinking was, how can we do this better? Um, next time because this virus isn't going anywhere and unfortunately though uh, I guess our our state is in denial and we've seen that in other in pretty much all summer with people not wanting to give up their social lives and not wanting to wear masks and all the sort of really minor things that you would ask somebody to do to help sort of the community get past this Um, Denial is definitely the word I'd use. Denial? Yeah. Um, Yeah, just maybe that kind of attitude, like, well, it's not affecting me, but I I know that more and more people are becoming affected, and I know that teachers are really nervous to go back to work and be put in a situation where, you know, every medical guideline that we see says avoid large crowds or groups, and we will not be we will not be able to avoid a crowd or a group once we go back to work, whether that's sitting in a building with staff members teaching online um, or, you know, obviously it gets worse when we talk about filling up classrooms, if there's no caps on how many kids are allowed to be in there. Um, So I think what we see is, unfortunately it goes kind of goes back to like we don't as teachers we do not have a collective mentality we saw we saw a lot of teachers say how grateful they were to still be working and how they can't wait to get back into the buildings and they can't wait to hug their kids and Uh, all this stuff that's really inappropriate for the particular point in history that we are at um and so you know it's not it's goes back to us not being able to kind of put together a cohesive message if we could all say we can't go back because we don't feel safe Um, but we're not getting that and parents are some parents are being particularly loud about the fact that they need schools to be open because their the virus has put a strain on their financial and economic circumstances yeah so you know I mean I don't feel like Teachers who are worried, our concerns are not, especially on a state level, not being heard. Um, SC Teachers United put together a survey uh, in June, and we had about 2,300 people sign from all over the state, educators, parents, community members, and we sent it to um, the governor and the state superintendent. And, you know, we never got any response back. I mailed it as well as emailed it to their representatives. I've never heard anything. Um, each district is dealing with it differently, but I feel that my particular district is doing the worst job of listening. Yeah, um, I would say, so I'm in Dorchester County, Dorchester District 2, and um, DD2 has been following their, their plan has been tr- attempting to follow the guidelines set out by um, the Accelerate Ed Task Force. So um, I'm lucky enough to be working in a district that will be starting virtually um, as of right now. However, 
at the state level, definitely not being listened to the uh, um, uh, directive set out by Molly Spearman has said that we uh, have to offer at least one day of in-person class a week starting uh, September 14th. And that was actually DD2's reopening plan was accepted by um, Molly Spearman's office, but the under the under the uh, stipulation that um, a week after we open virtually, we have to start offering one day a week in person. So um, I'm really not sure what good that does. Uh, I think that there is some wiggle room there. I think that uh, that she has said, Molly Spearman has said that um, that start date of in-person face-to-face stuff can be moved possibly if things don't improve, um, but seems really up in the air to me. Um, I have spoken with uh, my, you know, my principal and and some other uh, board members. Sent emails in my district. Um, overall, you know, I have gotten responses back from some of them. I've obviously gotten a response back from my principal, um, and for the most part I feel like they're hearing me but that you know it's not necessarily within my power or even their power because of state um, issues to address those concerns yeah um so there so kind of to that point there's been a lot of criticism uh, that the state has been ignoring the recommendation of organizations like dhec and accelerated um, can y'all give us some examples of some of these recommendations specifically and talk a, uh, a little bit more about the uh, how the state has failed uh, to step up and address these concerns well the funny thing is um accelerate so accelerate sc is the what they termed the overall task force for like getting the state back to a, like normal um, in the face of the virus. And so they made one called Accelerate Ed, which is supposed to be what the, they were supposed to be creating guidelines for getting back to school during the pandemic. Um, and it was, you know, it was created by the State Department. It was the State Department of Education did it based on a request by the governor, Governor Henry McMaster. So they were the states, they were supposed to be the state's recommendations. Um, but now they're just, now they've basically, because what is happening with the virus now cannot be reconciled with what the, what the, um, Accelerate Ed Task Force recommended, they've decided to just kind of throw it to the wayside. Um, it's not anything anybody has to use to create their reopening school plans. Um, it's a sound document. Um, there's certainly a lot of science and uh, good health information involved in the guidelines um, by, you know, they were guided by DHEC and CDC. Um, basically, it just it said that schools should be virtual if the transmission, well, they had three metrics, but um, one is the incidences of the um, positive cases. And if it's high, then schools should not reopen until that's uh, either moderate or low. And that would, 
that was sort of left up to districts, which I also think was a problem. They probably should have just said low so that somebody could have actually had a, a firm um, line to to sort of cross or not cross. But anyway, uh, they've decided that that will just be what it is, a recommendation. Um, and and it's actually contrary to what the governor has, has stated he wants to happen with schools. So um, DHEC is not. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, all we're, the only assurances we're, we're being provided is that we will get five masks um, from the state department and that there is enough money to provide schools with disinfectants. Um, some areas have provided plexiglass barriers in classrooms. Charleston County has been working on that. We've seen it in, in, the, in some news reporting, but I'm told Berkeley County have, was given $5 million and that is gonna only be enough to cover um, cleaning supplies and whatnot. And there won't be any sort of plexiglass or, and they're telling teachers we're not allowed to make our own structures because that could be a liability. That's interesting. You know, so so folks like McMaster and, and just the entire you know Republican party have always been pushing this line of like, let's leave it up to the local community. Let's leave it up to the you know cities. Let's leave it up to the schools for basically everything else that anyone has ever talked about ever. Um, uh, but the second we need some sort of unified front on how to deal with a global pandemic, it's all being thrown out the window. Is that pretty accurate to say? McMaster wants it thrown out the window. Um, they are, <laughs> so they're kind of leaving it up to districts. South, so I pulled up earlier today, I pulled up a list of what different states reopening plans are. South Carolina is listed as sort of state mandated hybrid model being okay, but they want it. They want people back in face-to-face -face school, right? Um, there are other states that are listed as leaving it up to the school districts. We're not one of those states. Um, McMaster is definitely wanting to just throw the science out and get us back to work. Um, and, you know, earlier it was mentioned that parents are having economic problems and need to be able to go to work. And in my mind, this is a failure of the state um, as well. Um, if we were providing, uh, you know, the ability for people to continue to pay mortgage, pay rent, deal with the financial issues that they're dealing with without having to, you know, without having to leave the house, um, then this wouldn't even be an issue. So um, to me, uh, the fact that people are even feeling like schools need to reopen so that they can babysit their kids, the, 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 the fact that parents are even feeling that way is a failure uh, on the part of the state. So um, yeah, McMaster wants us back open. I don't think it's necessarily because he cares about kids. The Republicans in the state have proven over and over again that they don't care about educating kids in public education. Um, it's more about the economy and making sure that we are, you know, uh, I mean, we're already slipping into a depression here, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's more about money than, um, student well-being. Yeah. Well, and there was, there was a period early in this earlier in the summer where they really seemed like they were just going to let districts make their plans. Yep. Um, and then Trump said he wanted schools back, kids back in schools five days a week. 
And mm-hmm. I was told by um, the director of a te- the teacher association that I'm a member of, she told me uh, the same week that my master made his announcement that kids needed to get back to school five days a week, she said, uh, we think that this week they'll be announcing that districts are going to have to provide five days a week um, for kids. Uh, and and she was right. They had some kind of inside scoop that um, that was going to, once that came down from Trump, that McMaster was going to contact superintendents. Um, and I know we've been told that our superintendent speaks regularly to the governor. And that makes a lot of sense because Charleston and Dorchester are both starting virtually, but Berkeley County had our, was one of the first districts to, to, our, to decide that despite the numbers, we're allowing kids to come back every day starting the first day of school. Yeah. And uh, McMaster's been a, uh, a, Trump ass kisser from day one. So yeah, he ain't going to be any help. Um, so that kind of brings me to a pretty obvious follow-up. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is that this sort of anti-science and anti-intellectualism mindset is happening not only on the federal level, like in the white house, but it's also kind of filtering down, uh, to, to the state and to local school districts. Is that, is that pretty fair to say? Yeah, I mean, Republicans are taking their lead from the top. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of that in our community. I live in Goose Creek. Um, and I mean, it at the beginning of the summer, and even when things started getting, ramping up, it was very rare to see anybody wearing a mask. And I eventually removed myself from the neighborhood, a few of the neighborhood and county pages on Facebook that I was a member of because it was just so much anti-science and just so ridiculous, um, this sort of like misconstruing uh, protection and health for, um, you know, a violation of one's independent rights or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's, it was just stupid. Uh, so yeah, we have, a we just, in our community, we have a lot of that. So, um, you know, whether it's from the top down or from, from community members that support that kind of like weird some some we have a board member who actually posted on facebook that it's against her religion to wear masks because it's a mark of the devil and she quoted she quoted a bible verse which even people who like i've asked about it were like that bible verse has nothing to do with that like i don't even understand and i was like well you know i don't know much about the bible but um you know we got she's on our school board making you know approving decisions for opening schools and she won't wear a mask because she believes it's against her religion. She also post, has posted several things about um, there's the, that hydro, what is it that Donald Trump thinks cares? Um, COVID hydro, hydro, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. She believes yeah. she, she has, she on her Facebook, she tells people to take that. I'm just going to do a little golf clap for Dre to be able to, for pronouncing it. I know, hydroxychloroquine. (laughs) I've typed it out, but I haven't really tried to pronounce it until just now. So I should have talked about that earlier. But yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And, you know, if if community members are going to buy into it, then it's really really hard for us, uh, you know, public employees um to be on the outside of that because there's already some distrust of teachers and 
education being kind of, you know, I don't know that a lot of people are get this liberal arts education and then they go teach our kids these, uh, you know, uh, teach our kids to be open-minded <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know, I know we're not on this right now, but I just thought about this, you know, we were talking about, uh, accelerate SC and accelerate ed and, and those groups providing, you know, recommendations for school districts in the, towards the beginning of the summer. Um, and how that's just been thrown out now. Well, I actually read a couple of articles today, um, this morning, they were brought to my attention, um, about, so, so one of the big things is that at the moderate level of, of infection rate to go to a hybrid model, that was what Accelerate Ed was recommending. And the hybrid model entails, you know, half of the students that are enrolled in regular schooling be on campus at a time. And that when those students are not on campus, they are receiving virtual education. So it keeps the numbers on campus low so that social distancing can be observed and, and all this stuff. Um, and I read this article this morning that a Harvard epidemiologist named uh, Dr. William Hannage, I think is how you say his last name. I'm not really sure. Um, but he uh, he's talking about how the hybrid model is actually not good for containing community spread mainly. And, and this is, you know, this is going to be an issue no matter what with reopening schools. Kids' parents want kids back in school so that they don't have to figure out childcare for them. If students are only in school part of the time, then they're still going to be seeking out childcare when they are not on the days that they aren't in school. Um, so also with high school students, with that extra free time that they would have, they're going to be spending time with their peers outside of school. Um, so because of that, you're actually getting more points of contact um, outside of the, the classroom uh, and that that would cause possibly, possibly cause more uh, community spread of COVID-19. So it seems to me that virtual until safe is really the way to, to go and, and what safe is needs to be clearly defined. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's stepping up and, and a listening to the science or B like, you know, identifying it in a clear, explicit way. Uh, and also not providing the financial mechanisms, the material aid and support for working families to be able to, to do these things, to take care of themselves, to stay safe. Yeah. And that, that, uh, and Lauren, I'm sure you can speak to this. Uh, but the, the other issue is that even with virtual school, our district is requiring teachers to go to the campus, to go to buildings, to teach virtually from their classrooms. So teachers who have kids that are in school are still having to either A, find childcare or send their kid, be one of the people sending their kids to school. Um, on top of the fact that that creates exposure risk for teachers because we're still having to go be on campus with other teachers and teach from our classrooms. So, you know, and that's, that's what DD2 is doing. I don't know what other districts are doing. Obviously, Berkeley is in a different situation because you guys have to go and teach school five days a week with kids on campus. But like, 
in DD2, we're having this issue. I have had lots of teachers talk to me about and, and post on Facebook about this, uh, that, you know, they're not going to be able to find childcare for their kids. They don't want to send their kid to school, but they can't leave them at home and they have to go to work every day um, to teach virtually uh, when we could just be teaching virtually from our homes. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's crazy. Um, but, but there it is. <laughs> it's nefarious is what it is. Cause it, it has this sort of paternalistic old fashioned view of like, we have to have butts and seats. Otherwise it's not real. And, and it demonstrates this, this lack of keeping up with the times. Um, you know, entire industries have switched over uh, to a work from home model. And there's definitely the technology for teachers to be able to do that. And, and teachers most likely more than, you know, uh, than principals or superintendents or, 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 or politicians or what have you are, are there on the front lines and equipped and, and are smart enough to figure out exactly how to execute it. But when you have to take your orders from people who probably thought it was a hoax a few weeks ago, it, it doesn't leave any sort of, of room to do things safely. Yeah. Well, and you know, it also demonstrates just a lack of trust in teachers. Um, and, and a, a, uh, really does, uh, patronization of teachers. You know, it's, it's basically saying, well, we don't trust you to do your job from home. You have to come to the building. We've got to, we've got to supervise you while you do your job, like physically supervise you while you do your job. You have to show up, you have to sign in, we have to check on you. We, you know, it's, it's, it's very, um, it, it's like, you're going to just be a lazy person and not do your job if you're at home working instead of at the school. That's, that's kind of, that's how I feel <laughs> when somebody tells me that they require me to go to the building, even though I'm going to be doing my job the same, oh, yeah. you know, whether I'm at home or not, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's totally ridiculous. And there was a little bit of that in the spring too, actually. Like, uh, I don't know, Lauren, how your district treated you guys in the spring, but, uh, there was this, and I think it came down from the state that we had to do this, but, um, there was this, uh, and I, you know, obviously documentation of what you're doing to teach kids is a good thing to do. Um, but there was, uh, a lot of, of, um, proving that we were, you know, doing what we were supposed to be doing. Um, and it obviously on some level you have to, um, but, uh, I felt that it was a little over the top. Yeah. Um, and the thing that also kind of cracks me up is, you know, if you're using online tools like this, there's generally an admin account that multiple people have access to you can see when thing like you can see when people log in you can see when people log out you can see what media has been used like anybody that's used a basic like file sharing program can can look and see how things are done and who's been active in what room or or on what project like this isn't hard this this technology has been around in the private sector for some time now um, and, and yeah, patronizing is definitely the word, uh, I would use. Um, so 
Uh, do you all feel comfortable moving on to the next question? Because uh, I feel like mm-hmm. we're kind of on a roll here, but I didn't want to like cut anybody off. Um, and I'm just trying to make sure that we're keeping an eye on the time here. Sure, whatever. Cool. All right. Um, so given that the current plan uh, for a lot of uh, districts in South Carolina is uh, to provide a uh, virtual option and an in-person option, uh, how do we address the wide variety of student needs while maintaining safety? Um, I mean, the problem that I see with this question, and it's not a problem with your question, but with, with <laughs> yeah, the way I that, guess I should have said like the it, way that we're forced are being forced to answer this question is that we're really not making safety a priority. Yeah. Um, and I've heard so many things about students, 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 and parents, and parents, and parents, but it really feels like it's mostly just teachers advocating for teachers being safe. And, you know, we are the ones who will be more likely to get sick. Um, and young people, especially children. Now I'm at high school, but I, I, you know, obviously a lot of our students are young and they're, they're likely to not have much of a symptom, you know, a list of symptoms, um, and maybe not even a fever, but we certainly have custodial staff and, um, you know, outside of obviously teachers, our administrative staff, our, our lunch um, or cafeteria staff. Um, there's a ton of people that can really be affected by someone who's asymptomatic bringing in um, the disease from the outside. So. Um, I just feel like safety is a, should be, should be the top concern, but anytime we try to bring that up, it's the argument seems to go back to, well, like kids, kids aren't getting that sick from it, or, uh, maybe, um, you know, not many kids have died from the disease or whatever. And I'm just thinking like, okay, well, I hope that you understand that, you know, teachers are actually running the school and adults are running the school. So if we're not considering uh, the safety of the adults in the building, then um, this whole thing is just going to fall apart anyway. Yeah. And I so, and, and monumental not, waste of time. Yeah. And, and also, of course, kids do get severely ill from this and kids do die from this. And one kid dying from this is one too many. I, you know, there is, um, if, if student safety is our number one priority, then we should not be reopening schools physically. We should be reopening them virtually. The, um, I, so I actually, I'm, I'm going to pull up an, this article that I found during my research today. I'm going to keep doing this, but oh, no. <laughs> this article Bring on the articles and, and uh, after <laughs> we're done, uh, if y'all don't mind, uh, after I can shoot done, you links, you uh, shoot me the uh, links to the articles so I can drop them in the show notes because Definitely. every episode of Renegade Paradise always has a ton of homework. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I'll just read a little bit of this article. This is from NPR. Um, While most children who catch the coronavirus have either no symptoms or mild ones, they are still at risk of developing severe symptoms requiring admission to an intensive care unit. Uh, This is from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, and they released this on Friday. Uh, Hispanic and Black children in particular 
were much more likely to require hospitalization for COVID-19, with Hispanic children about eight times as likely as white children to be hospitalized, while black children were five times more likely to be hospitalized. Um, so despite persistent rumors that children are almost immune from the virus, uh, an analysis of 576 children hospitalized for the virus across 14 states found that one out of three was admitted to the ICU, which is similar to the rate amongst adults. So if, if children do develop symptoms, uh, I think they're more likely to be asymptomatic, but if they do develop symptoms, a third of them end up in the ICU. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, this, this idea that children are not susceptible to this or don't spread it is totally false. Um, and that's, you know, high school kids get it and spread it like adults. Um, I think if you're over the age of 10, you're, you're, you know, not any less likely to spread it or any less likely to show symptoms than, um, than adults. Yeah. Less likely to die, less likely to die maybe, but you know, it's, yeah. it's still, it, it still so. stacks up to some scary shit. And, and Dre, to your point, um, SC for Ed released a uh, survey of 7,731 uh, educators. Um, and uh, out of that pool, 42.3% uh, of respondents are considered high risk due to a pre existing condition. And 64.6% of teachers reporting a uh, reported a pre existing condition. And that was taken from the Charleston City paper. And like I said, SC for Ed. So yeah, and I'm I'm one of those teachers actually. Yeah. I'm I'm at medium I'm at medium risk. I'm not at high risk, but I'm at more of a risk than a lot of people because I have high blood pressure. So. Yeah, and let's let's face it, like that's just the reality of being an adult. Like you probably have some sort of condition where you have to take a medication. Um, yep. So this is a ticking time bomb that's that nobody's talking about. Um, and we're about to throw, you know, hundreds of thousands of people into these incredibly dangerous situations all by choice because our governor doesn't believe in science. He'd rather believe in a mid-tier reality TV show host over literally every scientific paper and every scientific body in the world. This is it is a to do this. I have to breathe a little fire at least once per episode. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> let's um let's talk a little bit about uh how South Carolina's plans to reopen schools compared to other states. Uh maybe we can kind of lighten the mood just a little bit. Um so do you have some specific examples of how uh, other states are working through uh, COVID-19 um, and school enrollment in the middle of this pandemic? Are there any specific uh, success stories that South Carolina or, or uh, South Carolina school districts might learn from? 
I like how you think this question would lighten the mood, CJ. <laughs> uh, I'm, re- I'm really trying. I'm really trying. Uh, I, don't, I, just don't, I don't think there's any, there's just not much room for levity on this particular topic. Um, I, I, I think it's pretty much the same as it is here in other places, which is that, um, you know, school districts, they're kind of making their own decisions. Um, a lot of schools have already opened in Georgia. And you've probably yep. seen that there's been, um, you know, there's that really uh, sensational photo taken at a Georgia high school yeah, where the kids were in the hallway really close together. Yep. And they said that, you know, I think I read that it was like nine kids at least are now quarantining from that particular time in school. Yep. Um, but yep. like Atlanta public schools, they're doing their first nine weeks virtually. Um, LA, San San Francisco, San Diego, um, they're all starting virtually. Um, we're talking about places where that, like in California, that have pretty strong teacher unions. Um, the same thing with the DC and Chicago schools, they will both be starting virtually. Um, Houston and Texas is doing um, six weeks online at first, just to kind of see what the virus does. Um, you know, Texas has been hit pretty hard. Um, and there certainly is a correlation between like states and areas with strong teacher unions and listening to teachers and most teachers, you know, yes, there are some teachers that are ready to go back to the classroom. They're ready to take that risk, which is something you ask about um, CJ about like teachers being martyrs and, you know, it's just expected that we're supposed to just take all these risks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we do, have, there is a small contingent of teachers that are, that say that, but for the most part across the country, teachers are saying that it's just not safe and why would we risk it? I mean, most of the goals that schools set are arbitrary. So why not just move the goalpost along, um, you know, and let kids learn this stuff next year or in six months or whatever until we're all, you know, have access to a healthy environment. Yeah, the president of the United States doesn't know how to read. So, <laughs> so, so he doesn't know how to read well. <laughs> some some kids having to like start school a little bit late, they'll be fine. Young minds are pliable and and still growing and elastic and and hungry. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. We can do this. Yes, it will. It will. If they will just let it, it would be much easier than, um, you know, having to deal with really sick kids or kids and teachers dying and then having to figure out what to do at that point. We there A few weeks ago, um, uh, Shonda Jefferson posted uh, a uh, article, or I'm sorry, it was a reaction on Twitter. And I believe the name of Okay, yeah, it was an actually uh, like an open letter that was posted on her Twitter account. Uh, and again, this was uh, South Carolina Teacher of the Year, uh, Shonda Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the title was It's a No for Me. In her response, um, she brought up some very good points. Um, she asked the governor, you know, have, has he ever considered how many kids go home to their grandparents after school? How many teachers take care of their elderly parents? Uh, how many teachers have children or spouses that are immunocompromised or have underlying health issues? And you, we were just talking about, uh, you know, a pretty decent spread of teachers themselves having uh, uh, pre-existing conditions also. Uh, how many teachers are pregnant or have babies at home? 
and what about the demographics in our schools? Uh, what about the demographics in our schools that are disproportionately affected by COVID nineteen? And I think Dre brought that up earlier. Um, yeah, I believe I it's um, been shared pretty widely. Um, I think she just, you know, what's really actually sort of um, important about that letter is that in the past teacher of the year have maintained a lot of neutrality. Um, in the past, you wouldn't find a teacher coming out out to say that because that teacher of the year is uh, sponsored by the State Department of Education. So basically, it's a you know, it's a government prize, I yeah. guess you could say. So the fact that she really uh, took a stance basically against the governor and used her platform was pretty inspiring um, because for the most part, um, teachers are often encouraged to be apolitical. Um, which, which is interesting because teachers in schools are usually the first thing that are attacked and defunded uh, by certain people within the state government, yet are expected yeah. to have a poker face the entire time. What's up with that, right? Uh, you know, and, and so also as, as let's, I would like to say for just a moment that um, the fact that we're talking about a pandemic and a teacher sticking up for safety during a pandemic as being political is absolutely insane. The, the fact that this has even become a political issue, yep. that a pandemic and the safety of our children has become a political issue is totally insane, completely insane. Yeah. Like, it should not be a political issue. This should not be something that we're arguing about. You know, we should be supporting safety. We should be supporting public safety and public health. Like, I'm, I'm like, every day, of this entire situation, I have been astounded by the idiocy in the top echelons of our, our government. I'm, I'm, you know, anyway, sorry. <laughs> oh, it's, no, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I don't want to be the only one on this episode to breathe fire. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the, the fact that it's, it's not considered apolitical to say that, Hey, governor McMaster, um, maybe you should be thinking about the safety of your citizens that you are, elected to, you know, take care of and protect. Maybe you should be thinking about that a little bit. Um, the fact that that's considered not, you know, the fact that that's considered political is, is, is nuts anyway. Um, so, and, and it is considered political, you know, it's, it's definitely, uh, and, and it's awesome that she felt like she could stand up and say that. And I'm glad that she did. Um, platform. Yeah. And, and as far as being apolitical as a teacher goes, you know, um, I think it is important as public educators to keep things like our politics and our religion and other things like that, you know, out of the classroom. But that does not necessarily mean that we are somehow not allowed to stand up for ourselves and stand up for the kids that we teach when politicians try and hurt us or hurt those kids. All right. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that um, uh, Dre, I think uh, both you and Lauren uh, really hit the nail on the head here. Um, expecting somebody to uh, it, it, like 
trying to turn a global pandemic into a, a political hill to die on is just the weirdest fucking thing I've ever seen in my adult life. You wouldn't sit here and say, ah, I don't believe a hurricane's coming. It's fake news. Nah, it's, you know, I, you know what? Donald Trump said that it's not going to hit us. So I believe him. And that's just good enough. Um, he did want to, to shoot a nuke. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. Wasn't that Dorian or something? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good times. Yeah. Um, it, it just seems... It, it never ceases to amaze me that the same kind of people who like complain about movies or video games getting political and I'm using air quotes. I know this is an audio medium, but uh, you might have been able to tell in my voice. I don't know. Um, but you've got the same people who just constantly complain about things being political or about, you know, hurt liberal feelings. Uh, now suddenly like they're picking this hill uh, to, to, to bring out all of their shitty politics on. And it's like, you know, COVID-19 doesn't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, a socialist, a libertarian, it doesn't care. Like this is, this is a force of nature that we can't stop any more than, than we can stop an earthquake or an avalanche or, or a hurricane. Um, you know, the only thing we can do is react accordingly and and trust the people that have literally studied these types of things their entire working lives um and and for the life of me i don't get how that becomes a political uh decision well it's an election year so that's changed a lot of (laughs) things i think and um do you uh lauren do you think that if this was like a couple of years ago, we would be seeing uh, a different sort of response to COVID-19? Well, I think that um, Donald Trump has just, he's fumbled this so badly that, you know, there's really, there's really nothing else for him to do except forget the people who may be interested in gleaning some kind of favor from him to try to hold up his his storyline yeah so i mean that's that's what he's doing and so yeah i think i think things would be different if um well obviously if he wasn't president (laughs) but it's you know it's all just become a real perfect storm in terms of um you know the things that he he's not equipped to deal with because he doesn't have the the mental intelligence or the emotional intelligence or anything to deal with, with things that are going on in, in our society. So. Yeah. This would be a hell of a time to be a president, no matter who you are. Uh, and, and I mean, this, the really stupid thing though is other countries have done a good job combating this. There are examples of what needs to be done. Yeah, literally look look anywhere other than the United States. Right, and any dummy can copy a plan. And that's all we need to do. But there's no political will to do that. Yeah, that's that's the the most frustrating. Like, this doesn't require us to, like, come up with something from scratch. Like, there are literally tons of examples of other countries doing it uh, better than, maybe literally is not the right word, but every other country on the planet has done this better than we have. So uh, except maybe like Brazil or, you know, a couple others 
places like that. Like there, there are people, there are other leaders like Bolsonaro who oh, that's, is, that's a very, who, who, who is copycatting Donald Trump's yeah. opinions on things. Let's say this so, rich countries, every yeah. other rich country in the quote unquote industrial world that like looks like ours yeah. was able to spend a couple of months but you know, our problem is sacrifice. Like Americans have a real difficult time with sacrifice. Yeah. You know, it, they don't think that they should have to give up anything. Yeah. No, they're entitled. It's a it's an it's a cultural but also sort of psychological thing. And it's strange that the things we're willing to sacrifice are other people's lives versus like, oh no, I can't go to Applebee's for a few months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or I have to wear it. I'm not going to wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm over here like, masks are fucking awesome. <laughs> I get to look like <laughs> a bandit when I'm out in the daytime. Nobody look at me sideways. Yeah. When was the last time you could walk into a bank with a handkerchief over your face and be ignored, basically? I like know, that? right? <laughs> like, this is, my, this is, I'm living my best life here, man. I just love to go to the, I love to go to the grocery store and like see people I know, but they don't recognize me because I'm wearing a mask and I don't have to do yeah. small talk. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> As a teacher, that, that is. <laughs> don't want to be recognized outside the classroom. There are definitely right. some masking. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, anti small talk uh, caucus of. <laughs> Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm honestly hoping that masks are just normalized after this, that it doesn't stop, you know, that I can continue to wear a mask in public. And that it'll but, be but it's okay. a fashion trend. It's not necessarily right. pandemic around in 2025. It's just like, eh, seen it. I've bought, I've bought a few very stylish masks that I want to continue to keep as part of my wardrobe. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to normalize like the ski mask where all you have is like, I'm completely anonymous. Leave me alone. I love it. Ninja. Uh, <laughs> see, I knew we would get to some laughs at some point in this podcast. We just have to like mix it up a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, broadband access. Uh, so um, I recently listened to uh, Paul Bauer's podcast, uh, Brutal South. Uh, and him and his guests recently discussed the uh, access gap when it comes to broadband internet and how it primarily affects rural marginalized communities. How has South Carolina attempted to address the lack of broadband funding, if at all? Um, So they have tried to address this. Um, I actually, once again, did some research today, and uh, there is a... um, Dre, I need to have you start writing episodes for me. You're a research hound. <laughs> I, I like I like looking stuff up. Um, so this is uh, this is from uh, a news news seven in I think Spartanburg or Greenville. Um, so to qual- so there's a under South Carolina's online learning initiative. Families that meet certain qualifications can register to get portable a portable Wi-Fi device, commonly known as a hotspot, or a subscription to their home's internet provider. Uh, to qualify, families must meet the following requirements: um, households with an annual income of 250 percent or less of federal poverty guidelines, which is quite a that's very very poor. 
Um, an individual in the household attends a school. The household does not have existing internet service. The mobile hotspot is necessary as a result of the public health emergency caused by COVID-19. The cost of mobile hotspots and related service was not accounted for in a school's budget as it existed on March 27th, 2020. And uh, the last thing it says is priority will be given to households and counties that contain a school district that has been defined by the South Carolina Department of Education as having a poverty rate greater than or equal to 86%. So that's that's what this, the state Department of Ed has said. Um, I know that our school district, Dorchester District 2, is providing a device for every student. Um, they're providing a laptop or an, a, um, a tablet um, to every student in the, in the district. We are going one-to-one for technology this year. Um, and they were actually planning on doing that prior to the pandemic that was already in the works. Um, and uh, I know, I don't think some, I mean, some school districts don't have the money for that, you know, um, yeah. the, uh, they're, they're, uh, the, the way, the way schools are funded in this state, um, sort of makes it so that it's difficult for a lot of school districts to afford to do something like this. It's very expensive to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And the real shit thing is, is that like those areas that are least able to afford it probably need it the most. Yeah. Um, I actually just defer speaking of broadband band access in general, since you asked this question, there's a pretty good um, group called Broadband Now, uh, and they have a website, broadbandnow.com, conveniently. Um, and they have every state listed, and they have stats from each state, and then they do some ranking of different um, things related to broadband in those states. Um, and what I found was uh, while about 90% of South Carolinians have access to broadband um, and they do sort of differentiate between like how fast something is. So this was the 90% was broadband of at least 100 megabytes per second. The stumbling block is actually affordability because only about half of our state's residents have access to a broadband plan that is $60 or less a month. Um, so yep. there is definitely a correlation between the cost of broadband and the location to large cities. So the closer that one lives to a major city, the more plan options they have, which would provide them with more variety and competitive pricing um, because there are more providers in that area. For example, Charleston and Columbia have 18 providers that service their areas, while more rural towns that you may have not heard of, like Turbyville and Estelle, only have six providers. Yeah. So, um, and well, I'm glad uh, you brought that up. Um, I'm, I was able to pull up before we got on uh, the horn today, I was able to pull up a map on uh, the Post and Courier, and they have it broken down uh, like count, well, not quite county by county, but it's still a pretty good looking map. Uh, breaking down uh, the speed tiers of different internet mm -hmm. access providers and the density of unserved households. So if you, and I'll put a link to it in the episode. Yeah, and if you go to broadband broadbandnow.com, they also have some really great maps and you can literally drill down to this specific oh, yeah. uh, county and click on yeah. it and it'll show you all kind of information about what is available um, in that particular area. But just for overall sort of reference in terms of South Carolina's ranking, 
it is 31st among states in terms of broadband access. So we're not in the bottom 10, which is a place where we often seem to <laughs> fall, but we are at 31, which is not, you know, in the top half, obviously. So we are in the bottom half. I will say though, South Carolina has, besides what's happening right now with the hotspots, which they say, um, they say that the CARES Act will provide uh, hotspots for at least about 100,000 households. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have over the past few years um, been awarded lots of millions of dollars of federal grant money. In 2010, there was the, there's the Connect SC program. Um, and that was $4 million. But most of that money was used to just gather information about what's available um, to do some developing of broadband programs. But then um, shortly after, there was another $9 million provided to specifically expand the access to broadband. And then in February of this year, the U.S. gave $9 million to um, provide broadband to 6,000 homes, but only in Kershaw County. But the USDA program is supposed to be something that is, um, it's targeted, but it's supposed to happen in different places um, throughout the state every year until the grant is up. Okay. Yeah, this is super useful. Thanks for uh, providing the link. Yeah, this is really helpful. I love how you can like literally zoom in block level and see like how many options your neighborhood has. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is also uh, so students having devices, students having access to internet. Um, I don't know, friends, if you heard about Governor McMaster having an emergency fund, right? A governor's fund here for for states of emergency, and using the lion's share of his fund to try and uh, basically give scholarships to 5,000 students at schools this year rather than public schools. Did you hear about this? Uh, Can you repeat that? Uh, Because my internet connection got kind of wonky there, and I think part of what you said (laughs) cut out. Uh, So the governor has access right now, because we're in a state of emergency, to funds that he wouldn't normally have access to. Right. Um, And a large percentage of that money he wants to use to send 5,000 South Carolina students to private schools. Uh, um, He wants to give them scholarships to send them to private schools. We have over 700,000 students in the state and he's using the, he wants to use the majority of the money that he has access to right now for education purposes to thousand of those kids to private schools. Um, and, and that's, um, this, this is money that could be used other ways, obviously, um, rather than helping, I don't, I, this is just off the top of my head, but like 0.006% or something, <laughs> you know, like 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, something. I don't know what percentage of kids that, uh, you know, let me do, do it real quick. 700, we have 700,000 kids in the state. Um, so 0.007% of the students in the state will be helped by this money. And I think he's using like 80% of the funds that he has to do this with. Brilliant. So So not only is it a waste of of money, but it's also probably illegal. And I'm going to read a a section from the South Carolina state constitution. So come at me. Don't tread on me, folks. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know the Constitution better than y'all do. Uh, no money shall be paid from public funds, nor shall the credit of the state or any of its political subdivisions be used for the direct benefit of any religious or other private educational institution. And that is taken from the South Carolina so he's, Constitution, Article 11, yeah. He's getting around that by uh, giving that money to the families and letting the families decide how to spend that money. But, uh, it, you know, uh, I, I, I do think it has been held up in court, though. There, somebody, yeah, somebody yeah, is there's doing um, the South Carolina Educators Association. They have they had a, they have a lawyer and um, there's they have brought lawsuit against McMaster based on what you read. CJ, that particular part of the state constitution. Oh, good, um, good. And so, but then of course, the problem with that is that this money could be then be tied up in a, a legal battle for nobody to use. And so, yep. I mean, like, uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't, because now we won't get any of it. And it's $48 million, and he wants to give the $32 million to the to his uh, sort of sideways private school. Nah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to go soon because um, oh, okay. it's going to be bedtime at my house for my, me and my son, we watch cartoons one hour before bed. So that is time. a good ritual. It's about time mm-hmm. for her cartoons. So I'm going <laughs> to leave in like eight minutes. Okay. That's no problem. Um, well, let's see if we can barrel through a couple more questions real quick. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to pick your brain as much as I can while you're here, Lauren. And I'll, I'll let you answer, Lauren, because uh, Bones can keep talking to me after you go if he wants. So. Okay. All right. Drum solo for Lauren. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so um, is there any support available for parents, uh, for working parents who can't access uh, broadband internet? And what can community members uh, do uh, to help while staying safe? Um, well, I thought about this since you provided me these questions ahead of time. Um, so our district already had hotspots and, and we already were one-to-one, which means that every kid in our district already had a device that went home with them. So, um, there really wasn't, uh, you know, the kids didn't have to spend a lot of time getting up and running at home. Um, but we know a lot of children in our state don't have that same. There was a, I don't know how long you guys have lived in South Carolina, but years ago, there was a movie, a documentary called The Corridor of Shame. We all know that. I am familiar with Yep. Yep. Okay. I, I was um, born and raised here. <laughs> okay. It was sort of piggybacked off of Jonathan Kozell's um, book, really famous book, Savage Inequalities, where he uh, investigated a lot of um, poorly funded schools around the country, but he, he also did a section in his book about South Carolina, and some people jumped on that. And like I ninety five has down I ninety five has some of the poorest schools in the entire country. So um, there was even a lawsuit like about this whole thing and. It went to the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court said that in South Carolina, um, poor students were not getting um, a minimally adequate education. And they did see it as a uh, sort of a byproduct of continuing segregation in schools and uh, racist funding policies, basically. Uh, however, 
after years and years of appeals and instead of the state department like with fidelity trying to correct these issues they just kept pushing it through court and um i think finally maybe 2 years ago uh they uh decided the new uh judges on the court decided that rule could be abandoned um or the findings from that case so um you know we have a chronic like historical problem in our state and as far as like what people can do you know people really just need to hold people with power accountable um because we have a ton of people that serve in our state legislature that could not give one shit about education and they keep getting voted on and voted on and voted on and there's a couple of repeat offenders that I can think of right now who don't even have name drop Oh, um, Henry uh, Lucas and Hembry. Um, these are two uh, people that serve in the state legislature, and they are just—they're just scumbags. And um, they like to care, but everything that they vote on and that they try to pass, and all this stuff that they are saying they—they're doing to care about for show. Um, and they don't even, I, I don't know about Lucas. I don't think he does, but I'm certain that Hembry, who's in Horry County, um, does not, is not being, is running unopposed. So, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a law and order kind of chick, as you all know. Um, and I often feel like voting doesn't matter. But when it comes to education, these people are holding the purse strings. Um, and really, it is often a matter of money. And our rich, the rich districts in our state are doing okay, but the ones that are poor continue to be poor. Yeah. And I just feel like people need to get more involved. They need to know more what's going on. If, if you have a kid in school or not, it's still, you know, it's still a really important community issue for the kids that live in our in our areas. Mm -hmm. Um. So. Kind of on that same note, uh, what kind of organizations, Lauren, are pushing back against some of these reckless uh, reopening plans, uh, and how can cons uh, concerned members of the community support them? Uh, how are uh, teachers reacting, and and what are well? I guess that part I feel like we've already covered. So, uh, but feel free to talk about that more. Yeah, um, all the major South Carolina like teacher professional groups and organizations are supporting virtual until safe. Um, this includes the uh, South Carolina chapter of the National Education Association, which is the SC Education Association, um, Palmetto State Teachers Association, which is not affiliated with any sort of larger unionized um, or collective national group, but it is a really powerful voice in South Carolina, and they offer legal protection and um, uh, professional development opportunities for their members. Um, and then of course there's SC for Ed. Um, all, and then we have some uh, sort of a group that's coalescing together to support virtual until safe. And that includes the Charleston Alliance for Fair Employment, um, as well as Charleston DSA. And then there's um, KGM, which is the Charleston Area Justice Ministries and then um, Southerners on New Ground the Columbia chapter, uh, have teamed up with us, SC Teachers United, <clears throat> to 
to try to kind of bring like a broader base to this issue because like I said, you know, education does affect the entire community um, and of course communities throughout the state. And there is gonna be a state house action on August 15th, um, which will include a car rally or what they also call a motor march as well as a public statement of demands. And I'm just gonna list the demands really quickly. Um, any uh, schools stay virtual until DHEC is of transmission of the virus that causes COVID-19 as low. And there are already those, um, those metric measurements are already in place and can already be found uh, regularly on the DHEC website. Um, publicly fund internet and other re related resources for students. Nice. The reallocation being that school resource police officers, also known as SROs, receive and shift those public tax dollars to social services for students. Um, and just kind of as a related to this particular point in time, if schools are virtual, there is no need for POUA. Um, a school meal replacement plan, meaning that if kids aren't at school, they can still have access to, to meals um, through um, food services. Students with disabilities receiving the same resources that, or receiving the resources that they need for their particular learning within a home setting. Unemployment pay and job programs towards supporting virtual schooling for those whose jobs are threatened by virtual schooling. Yeah, those are, um, those are all great, uh, those are all great demands. Um, I think we touched a little bit on how so, so much community funding goes uh, to SROs and goes to police departments. Like we, we literally broke down the numbers, um, you know, as we were talking to uh, Carolina Youth Action Project and, and a couple of the abolition episodes that we've done in the past, but it's astonishing to see over and over again how much money uh, from from cities goes to like police departments and SROs and other measures of protecting uh, the, the property of the wealthy while leaving the rest of us to fend for ourselves. So we touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but let's kind of do a deeper dive. Um, so obviously teaching is a noble profession, it's important, uh, but the uh, but the, the, the selflessness that we see uh, throughout like our schools and displayed by so many teachers has been weaponized against them over and over again. It's nothing new uh, as teachers and schools continue to face budget cuts, longer hours and larger class sizes without any pay increases or support from uh, administration. Um, how are we seeing that within the context of this pandemic? Um, well, at my, uh, so we had a, we had a protest a couple weeks ago at my district's board meeting and I made a bunch of signs um, to hand out and to carry myself and one of mine said teachers, not martyrs, um, because this is something that's on my mind a lot, like what we're asked to sacrifice. Um, you know, we're professionals and I just can't think, I can't think of any other job where it's so um, the appeal is so emotional. Um, and I have to, I have to believe, um, that it has a lot to do with the fact that teaching ha has predominantly been a female profession sort of being used against us, this sort of mothering, nurturing situation, like that's who we're supposed to be. 
um, almost to the point where we're supposed to kind of give up our own needs and our own, um, in some, in some instances, even our own rights, like we were talking about earlier that we're supposed to kind of be apolitical, not have our own ideas. Um, we are in a situation where it's mostly women who are working in this field being dominated by men in leadership positions. So I think they're using that. And while it is true that like we do care a lot about our kids, you can't, you can't work in this job for very long and not care because if you did, you'd quit. Mm -hmm. If you didn't care, you'd quit and you'd go make a lot more money somewhere else, like waiting tables or something. Um, so we know that the teacher turnover rate is extremely high. And I think right now this pandemic is just going to make that worse. I already have friends that have already decided to um, pursue other lines of work. And they have, in some cases, they're at risk of losing their teaching certificate because they've broken their contract. Um, and of course, we have that contingency of teachers that is following that line that we should just be happy to have a job during a pandemic and that we shouldn't be mad that the pay raises that we got promised just recently will now be on hold uh, with no sort of explanation or timeline as to when we could expect those um, or that we should be so committed to our students that we should just be willing to risk our own lives and the lives of our family to go back to schools that are really not assuring, giving any assurances to our safety. All we keep hearing over and over again is that they're gonna try to social distance. They're gonna try to make sure that everything is sanitized and cleaned. Um, and in, uh, in my district, at least, it's gonna be teachers who are responsible for doing that. Yeah. So. Just um, another thing on, the, on top of everything teachers have to do day in, day out. Yeah. Yep. So, my opinion that you know we need to change the narrative that virtual until safe is it means the safety of teachers students and students families yeah. right it's not just um the fact that we won't be in school and that'll be less you know that's virtual is less effective and and i think everybody agrees scenario but risking people's lives is it's just not worth it yeah you know if if uh if they really wanted kids to be back in school, getting the best education that they could get, then they should have kept the state shut down until our numbers were low enough that we could reopen schools without it being an issue. But they didn't do that. You know, so. and, they're, and they still don't somewhere. want to do it. <laughs> and they still don't want to do it. So what's going to happen nope. when we go back to school and schools become, you know, hot spots for virus spread? Yep. Yeah. And they will. So. Um, I do want to, I definitely want to address the last thing before I go though, because yes, um, yes. <clears throat> as far as like what people can do for teachers and students, um, I'd, I'd like to go back to how a lot of the problems in our state that like the pandemic has been exposed a lot of problems related to education in our state, but they're just problems that were, you know, already occurring for a long time. To encourage people to get involved in with their local school boards. Um, Charleston County has two really wonderful candidates running right now. And um, CJ and Dre, since you guys work with TSA, you probably know Frank, right? Or Francis Baylot. Yep. So he's running. And um, in Charleston, in Charleston County, um, it's their at-large seats. So anybody who lives in Charleston County can vote for Francis. 
Um, and he has kids in the schools and he's a longtime resident of West Ashley. And what we really need to do is just, we need to put the hands in the power of people who care about public education because we see it at the state level, uh, it's privatization is really what they've been pushing for a long time. And they, they do these backdoor things like tax credits for parents who send their kids to religious or private schools. And every time a kid leaves a public school, we get less money for public schools. So pushing them into private schools does not help public schools. It hurts public schools. Um, so we just, we need to have an Erica Coakley. She's in North Charleston and she's a, um, very important community activist in her area. And she's also running for a school board seat in, in Charleston County. So even if you don't have kids, I really want to encourage you, like these positions are important because they hire superintendents for the districts and superintendents are really the ones that make all the policies and rules and then the board approves them. So if you don't have righteous people running, running your schools from sort of like these top level and you're going to have what we're faced with in Berkeley County, which is like a bunch of people who think education is, you know, doomed to fail. And so they want to look for alternatives, which often means corporatization or privatization. Yeah. The um, Also with the Charleston County School Board, I believe there are two seats that nobody is running for yet, or there are people that are running unopposed. And so if you are one of those righteous people. I'm talking to the listeners out there and you think that you might be able to run for school board and do that job about it because yeah, we need, we need some people that are going to do a good job. With we need advocates for, for our kids and for improving public, destroying it. Yeah. All right, y'all. Thanks for having me. I got to I got to go. It's cartoon time. All right. Well, See you, yeah. Have, have fun. fun. Bye. Thanks. Cartoon time. You know what? I'm going to watch some cartoons after tonight's episode uh, recording. That's I might, uh, yeah, it might be cartoon time for me too here soon. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Dre, uh, anything, because I feel like we did, we did kind of jam a lot of questions in toward the last uh, little bit of recording there um, uh, to make sure that uh, Lauren got uh, everything in she wanted to talk about before she had to bounce. Um, is yeah. there, you want to like kind of follow up on um or like anything else you think we need to chat about before you go uh you know i think we've been pretty um thorough um so so something specifically pandemic related something that um parents and students could do um to uh to help with this situation mm -hmm. all districts have is South Carolina, the State Department of Education has said that all districts must provide a virtual academy option so that parents have the choice to enroll their kids virtually for the entire school year. Um, and so I would say that something that a lot of people could do to help their communities and keep COVID-19 from spreading would be to enroll their kids in those virtual academies if they can. Um, that's... Uh, Basically, the best way to not have schools be a spread center for this disease is for people to not be there. So, <laughs> couldn't have said it better myself. Yep. Yeah. It's unfortunate that a lot of people don't have the resources. Like, I think that really what we're is the fact that my cat's going to come into the shot here again. Um, <laughs> is is <laughs> I think the the thing that we're struggling with a lot here is the fact that 
you know, a lot of people in South Carolina just don't have the ability for their kid to stay home. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's something that the state could fix. So, um, it, it really goes to show you how um, everything that we kind of struggle with always has that element of class. Like all of these issues that we've talked about tonight, you can't divorce them from like income inequality, from the rigid class system, uh, especially here in the South. Like these are things yeah. you, you you have to include in your conversations. Otherwise, like it just goes nowhere because, you know, we even if even if like South Carolina actually believed in science and took this shit seriously, that doesn't do a lot for uh, families that where both parents are working and, and they can't afford childcare. And, you know, right. It you know, has, has nobody to watch them while they take their online courses. Um, so, right. Uh, yeah. You know, something, something else that has to do with, with class and especially in the South that I brought up from the NPR article um, where um, Hispanic children were eight times more likely than white children to be hospitalized for COVID-19. Black children were five times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID-19. And one of the things that was brought up later in that article is that um, that those numbers aren't, you know, because inherent weakness to the disease because somebody's Hispanic or black. It's because Hispanic parents are more likely to be frontline essential workers. Black parents are more likely to be frontline essential workers. So they're more likely to bring COVID-19 home from their workplace and infect their children. And those kids are therefore more likely to yeah. end up hospitalized because they're more likely to get in, you know. Um, and uh, that's definitely a class disparity um, that um, affects uh people of color in the South because people of color in the South are typically not, uh, in the, um, not in the haves group, you know, they're, they're, uh, they've been excluded and they continue to be excluded. Um, and it's, uh, it's terrible. So. Yeah. And, um, early, very early in the discussion we were talking about, um, the the private industry uh starting to like especially if you work in like tech or creative fields or or, or office jobs like a lot of these places uh moving to remote working and if you're um you know if you're one of these frontline workers if you're working you know where you can't uh work from your machine at home or if you don't have internet access um yeah there there are definitely some some demographic uh, dis disparities and racial disparities that really haven't been talked enough. Like they haven't been talked about nearly enough. Um, yeah. hopefully, uh, you know, this is our little stake in the ground here with Charleston DSA. Like we're, we're hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we can, we can drive the conversation forward, even, a, even if just a little bit, you know? Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dre, that's a that's about all I had for you. Um, any uh, anything else you want to add before we uh, sign off for the evening? I think we're good, man. All right, buddy. Well, uh, <laughs> take care of yourself. Stay good safe. Talk. It was good. Yeah, it was good being on the show. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think this is your first time on the show. Yeah. 
It is. Uh, I hope it's not my last. Oh yeah, definitely not. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I guarantee I'm going to, if you're, if you're active in the Charleston DSA discord, I'm going to be hitting you up for, uh, to come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, buddy. Well, yep. as um, things move forward, man, uh, just know that we all got your back and, and, and your comrades are rooting for you, but thanks. Yeah, man. Have a good night, man. You too. Solidarity forever. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants be your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions, for you have nothing if you have no rights. Let racist ignorance be Freedom is merely privilege extended unless enjoyed by one and all. Exploitation.